0: Hi everyone, DM Sorana here. Back in April, I suffered a small brain injury that fucked me up for about a month, and when we came back to play again in May, I was still quite a bit out of it and managed to fuck up three sessions worth of recordings before I got the settings in our recording software set. So, in lieu of those sessions, I will be reading the notes from the three lost sessions for you here. My apologies for the error, and I look forward to seeing you next time for Chapter 9. Arc 2, Chapter 6, Distress Signal The day after Isar's siege of Goodmead, the party receives a request for help from Glenn Corr, proprietor of the hook, line, and sinker in Kerr Konig. He, along with the other members of the Ten Towns Society, a group of psychically inclined individuals from across the towns, have been experiencing mysterious headaches over the past week, which have only increased in intensity over time. Kareen and Furpit have also been experiencing these headaches, the former due to her connection to Oz and the latter due to the Psy crystal he discovered in the mines of Tourmaline. This, combined with the promise of a hefty reward, draws the party together in good meat to meet with the society. A palpable tension hangs over good meat as you enter. Between the previous night's brief siege by the tribe of the Wolf, and the revelation of Speaker Shane's role in the death of Speaker Akinthai, there's plenty for the average citizen to be on edge over. Most stay in their homes, peering out their windows in fear as you pass by. The only contingent out in force is the town militia, every member of which is in the streets. In the town square, newly elected Speaker Froth drills a small group of civilians, new recruits, whipping them into a fervor as he speaks of the need to defend Goodmead, both from foreign invaders and from those who wish them ill. The party makes their way to the given address, a small house on the outskirts of town. Before any of them can knock, the door swings open, revealing a big-eyed halfling who turns and walks into the house without a word. They find the place a sensory overload, from the colorful New Age accoutrement to the overpowering smell of incense. Inside, they are introduced to the four members of the society. Glencore of Kerakonig, President, Sheriff Kelra the Ripper of Kerakonig, Vice President, Laska Lang of Dugan's Hole, Secretary, and Veta, Star Spirit of Goodmead, Cosmic Advisor. The party enters in the midst of a fierce debate between Veta and Glenn, with the latter blaming their current woes squarely on the mysterious object that hurtled the ground a few weeks ago, and the former admonishing him for seeing such clear causality in the ministrations of the universe. The reaction of the party to this strange situation is mixed, with some down to chat but most looking to get in and out as fast as possible. While the rest are chatting, Laska, the big-eyed halfling, asks Corrine how tall he was before clarifying she means the cold-hearted killer. Corrine doesn't know, and she discovers by peering over her shoulder that Laska is writing an account of their fight with the cold-hearted killer. Finally, after some back and forth, the society decides to fund the party investigating the fallen object. They have little idea of what they'll encounter there, but the high pay of 250 gold is convincing enough for the party to go. The society also provides the group two dog sleds, and soon thereafter the group strikes out into the tundra. As they travel, Furbit spots a Dwergar, staring at him across the frozen expanse. However, before he can inform anyone else, it has vanished, though he does let the rest of the party know it was there. Meanwhile, Nas begins speaking to Therican for the first time in a week, apologizing for the long break, but saying that she needed it to get over her, an- her anxieties about Therican saving her over her party members during the encounter with Dizan. Therican maintains that Nas is important to her, and the ghost girl reciprocates. After a day's travel, Bryn is able to navigate to the most likely place the space rock impacted, and the party makes a surprising discovery. As you crest the ridge, gazing upon the snow-covered valley below, you know you have reached your destination. A deep, rocky groove in the terrain a quarter of a mile long stretches out before you, partially filled with newly fallen snow. At its terminus, glowing with a soft yet eerie purple light, is an enormous ship, The shape of the craft resembles a large conch shell, with strange spiral designs on its side adding to the perception. Tentacles as large as tree trunks sprout from its rear, leading up to a small deck with a ballista mounted upon it. A large metal door, inscribed with words in a language you cannot read, sits behind the ballista. Next to it is a small metal pad with the outline of a hand, though one with four long fingers upon it. Above the door is a large metal shutter, and above that is a small balcony. The entire ship is covered with frost, and no sounds emanate from it as you approach. The party is, understandably, extremely freaked out by this actual alien craft they have come across. They approach it tentatively, with Furpit's detect magic revealing traces of divination, conjuration, and abjuration magic. Kareen does a sweep of the perimeter, discovering a pile of bodies buried beneath the snow nearby. Most are animals with a few odd faceless humanoids mixed in, and all have had their brains removed. Finally, after some hemming and hawing, Chilpak and Tobinir first open the door and let the party into the ship. The room beyond is illuminated by small, fleshy orbs that stick to the walls and ceiling. The simple metal, metal walls are uncovered, revealing pipes and tubes, Some metal, others appearing fleshy, snaking throughout the ship. This deck appears to be used for storage, as countless crates and boxes of metal and wood are scattered everywhere, some opening and spilling what looks like random junk onto the floor. A staircase leads up to a sealed metal door. At the rear of the deck are four doors made out of purple fleshy sphincters, all quivering slightly. Standing to their left is a humanoid figure, unmoving and silhouetted in shadow. The whole room is remarkably temperate, easily 50 degrees or warmer, a paradise compared to the outside. Tobernir, with furpit on his shoulders, heads to investigate the humanoid figure. Before he can reach it, however, a mysterious creature launches at his face, though he manages to dodge it. Coming out of the gloom, you see an exceedingly odd creature. It resembles a humanoid infant, but with purple skin and big black eyes two enormous tentacles sprout from its face, which it uses to walk on, suspending the rest of its body in the air. At the same time, the humanoid begins to glow, revealing it to be a headless iron automaton. It attacks the party, dealing massive damage to whomever it strikes, though its lack of a head means those hits are few and far between. Tobernier is distressed to find his claws have no effect on the creature, resistant as it is to non-magical attacks. After some time, the fighting is interrupted by the opening of the door to the second floor. The door at the top of the stairs opens with a clanging sound, light pouring through it. A creature standing in the doorway casts a shadow onto the deck floor. It is a humanoid shadow, long and slender, with four fingered hands and four dangling tentacles near its mouth. Slowly, the creature begins to descend the stairs. As it does so, the shadow shrinks, smaller and smaller, until the creature finishes its descent and rounds the corner. It is a three-foot-tall humanoid with black eyes, a a bulbous purple head, and four tentacles protruding where one would expect a mouth. It is also wearing a set of capri pants cut off slightly below the knee and a thick cable-net sweater. It is, on the whole, just about the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. And then it says, Well, I was wondering what was making all that racket. Would you find folks mind stopping beating the tar at old Tin Tim? The party, befuddled more than anything, puts down their arms. The aliens turn out to be perfectly nice a married pair of former gnomes n- named Barbara Jean and Marshall Tinkerheart who just so happened to have been kidnapped and infected with illithid brain parasites. Unlike most humanoids, however, the transformation said parasites-induced did not change their personalities, so although they still eat brains and pledge loyalty to their illithid homeworld, they do it with kindness and a sunny disposition. They are in retirement now, though, taking their ship across the plains and cosmos to see all there is to see in their twilight years. Their ship is adorned with pictures from their various voyages, from the bubbling pits of the Nine Hells to the gear worlds of Mechanus, even once coming across Oriel on her home plane of pandemonium some years ago. They do so with their three adopted children, Sammy, Marsh Jr., and Ublex. experiments designed to allow for illithid reproduction without brain parasites. Their current predicament arose when they tried to do a flyover of the Icewind Dale, having heard it was quite beautiful, only for their equipment to malfunction and their ship to crash. The headaches the psychically inclined are feeling is due to their distress beacon, which would normally call for assistance from their homeworld, but hasn't been able to reach them due to the rhyme. They would be more than happy to shut it off, but if they do not find a crystal to power their ship soon, their life support will fail, leaving them to freeze to death in the cold. This presents a quandary to the party. How much should they take the aliens at their word? They may seem benevolent, but definitely eat brains and could be dangerous beyond that. Firpin and Therikin are the most concerned, with the former actively suspicious of strangers after his run-in with Torg's caravan, while Chilpak is the most inclined to take the aliens at their word. In the interest of clearing the air, Chilpak inquires about the corpses outside, causing Barb to abashedly reveal the aliens' growing pods where they grow non-intelligent humanoids, as animal brains don't just don't taste as good, This is enough to assuage the doubts of the majority of the party, leading Furpet to give up the eye crystal. In return, he receives gold, a magic tattoo, and an enormous amount of self-doubt due to his instincts proving more faulty than not. While the party is preparing to leave, Barb sees the emblem on Corrine's shield and recognizes it. She then produces a small wooden box with the Crescent Moon emblem on it, saying that during a trip to Gladsheim, she was given it by a nice woman, who asked her to hold on to it until she came across Corrine. After some pondering, she recalls the woman's name, Saloon, Corrine's goddess. This causes Corrine to just about fall apart with Rapture, while Barb seems extremely nonchalant about the whole deal. Corrine then takes the box outside, causing the light of the full moon to fall upon it. Under the light of the full moon, the lid of the box springs open. Brilliant white light pours from it, painful to look at at first, but slowly dulling and morphing into a humanoid shape. Features come across it after some time, revealing a beautiful woman. Her skin is as pale as gossamer, her hair a flying platinum blonde, her eyes a deep black. Cloaked in an elegant white hooded robe, she straightens to her full height of ten feet and looks down at you and smiles. Never in your life have you felt more terrified and yet comforted, twisting your stomach into knots. Corrine falls to her knees in worship, which seems to embarrass Saloon more than anything. She's quick to explain that she is not exactly Saloon, rather she is a copy of the goddess made when she met the Tinkerhearts all those years ago. As Saloon cannot currently directly contact Corrine, but could foresee her needing her help, she created this box as the next best thing. Corrine asks how she was spared, why she was bonded to Oz, to which Saloon replies that it was not directly her doing. She explains that some people are woven into the fabric of fate more than others, and that Corrine is one of those people. Oz was meant to die to those bandits, not her. And her truly selfless act changed that. The universe thus corrected itself in the way it could, bonding her soul to the changeling. As for why, Saloon does not know in a specific way. What she does know is that this region is destined for great conflict between two peoples. One will inevitably consume the other with fire and rage, unless someone stops them. Someone who can walk between the black and white and live in the gray. But she cautions Kareen that first she must f- find the gray within herself how she does that is up to her what she can give her is more strength to do what must be done which she does by blessing Kareen and her shield to give her more of her power Kareen thanks saloon and the goddess b- begins to fade but before she does she tells Kareen that she believes in her the tinker hearts offer everyone a ride back to goodmead but the party refuses the ship hums back to life thanks to Furbit's side-crystal, and takes off, with Barb and Ublex waving together goodbye out the back window as the ship winks into nothing. The party camps for the night nearby, heading out early the next morning. Their journey is interrupted, however, as they dive headlong into a massive blizzard. They quickly realize that it is no ordinary snowstorm, as the winds buffet and grab at them like a million desperate hands. One by one, the members of the party are picked up from the sleds and tossed in different directions. Soon, they are all alone in the raging storm. Arc 2, Chapter 7, The Beast Born While unconscious, Bryn dreams of hunting in the Neverwinter Woods. You awaken leaning against a tree with the hum of insects and the stickiness of the air indicating that you are not in the dale. You were in fact in the middle of the Neverwinter Wood in a summer long ago, having dozed off against a tree in the middle of a hunt. The deer you were tracking is long gone, leaving you a bit grumpy and more than a bit hungry. After tracking the beast, Bryn discovers it has already been killed, and in the process of being butchered by two hunters. The hunters also have a falcon in a cage with them which they say will fetch a pretty price back in the city. To Bryn's surprise, the falcon begins to talk, complaining about his captivity and swearing vengeance against the hunters. Bryn lets him know that he can understand him, much to the bemusement of the other two people. Before long, Bryn offers to buy the falcon off of them, which they agree to mainly to get the crazy half-elf away from them. Bryn releases the falcon, who elects to stick with him out of a promise of fresh fish. Bryn then awakens to Franklin desperately biting his nose, the two alone in a raging blizzard. Tobrinier, meanwhile, dreams of a shameful loss of self-control from his past. You find yourself in a tent, lying on a bed made of furs and straw. You are younger, a young teen, and ch- your cheeks are wet with tears. You quickly realize why. You remember losing control during a sparring match. Your father's encouragement quickly turned to jeering and egging on as the match progressed, and you found himself believing his harsh words. You pushed yourself too far, and you have no idea how badly your friend is hurt. As you lie there, the tent flap opens, and someone walks in. Though Tobernier admonishes her to go away, his mother only sits at his bedside and puts a comforting arm on his shoulder. He wonders out loud why he has been saddled with this burden— why it had to be him. His mother does not pontificate on why, saying only that the All-Spirit chose him for a reason. She tells him that he is not the first to go too far and injure a sparring partner, and that what is most important is that he has a good soul. Turbtinger tells his mother that he loves her as the dream fades, and he is awakened by Bryn helping him to his feet. The two ponder what to do for a moment before ultimately deciding the most prudent course of action is to strike out in a single direction in search of shelter. Between the two of them, their survival skills are good enough that they are able to make their way to a nearby forest, sheltered somewhat from the biting winds. The blizzard begins to clear somewhat as the, play- as the pair happen upon a trio of reindeer. With their bellies rumbling, they elect to go on a hunt. Bryn sneaks up on the trio, scoring a killing shot through one of their heads with ease. This startles the other two, who run in Tobinier's direction. With grace and poise, Tobinier attempts to decapitate one with his greatsword, but misses, leading to him almost being gored by the beast before it runs away. As the two take a breather, they are interrupted by the sound of a humanoid scream. A crag cat bounds out of the shadows, but not an attack. It races past the party, running away from a polar bear. Not fast enough, though, as the beast catches the cat cracking its neck with its teeth. It is then transformed into a half bear half-humanoid form, revealing it to be Oya Minartok, Furpit's mentor. Oya abashedly apologizes for scaring the two, then recognizes them as Furpit's friends, saying that he had told them much about them. They express their appreciation for the two, knowing that they respect the Dale and its natural beauty. They also request that they send Furpit their way, saying that they need to speak to him. Before leaving, Oya indicates a direction with suitable se- shelter, wishing the two a good night. As the duo walks to the location Oya indicated, the storm begins to clear up further, revealing the aurora painting the sky overhead. They also hear a song echoing across the tundra, though the location and lyrics are not clear. Bryn remarks on how beautiful it sounds. Soon, the two find the shelter they are looking for, setting up camp and beginning to roast the reindeer. As they sit, they reminisce about the past, the great hunts they shared, and their friendship. Later that evening, Torbernier's watch is interrupted when four humans begin stalking the camp. Coming out of the gloom, you see four humans. From their attire, you recognize them to be from your tribe, though you have never met them personally. From the amount of blood and viscera they are soaked in, you know they are not your friends. You quickly notice that all four have mottled rusty patches all over their skin, and all four are wielding weapons made from chardelin. The largest, a built woman about as tall as you, if not taller, with shorn hair and missing an ear, cracks a crooked smile as she sizes you up. Their leader, Tanaya. ...says that Isar made a mistake leaving Toberner alive, and that she is here to correct that mistake. A few curt words later and the battle begins, with Bryn being unceremoniously awakened by the sounds of clashing weapons and gnashing teeth. The fighting is intense, with the three being outnumbered, and Bryn is soon dealt a series of blows that leave him critically wounded and forced to retreat. This leaves Tobernir alone, outnumbered two to one, and desperate. And when pushed to his limit... Tobernir truly lets loose for the first time. You let out a wrenching, guttural growl as you feel a hot, white pain in your stomach like nothing you've ever felt before. It spreads, radiating out your limbs and into your head and through every part of your body. When it clears, you have changed. You sport the muzzle, the tail, and the claws of the Beastborn. Simultaneously, just as Croninson did. Your hair has grown at least a few inches, hanging shaggy in front of your face. You've grown too, at least six inches, though you quickly hunch over into an offensive pose. Change more than anything now is your mind. You see these people in front of you not as family, not even as enemy combatants. You see them as prey. In three quick blows, Tobernir disembowels Tanaya, ending his would-be killer in an instant. The last man runs away in fear, but he does not get far tobernir runs him down and soon he breathes no more as Bryn Bryn staggers back into camp tobernir collapses unconscious his bestial traits receding Bryn tends to the wounds of both himself and his unconscious friend and the two spend the remainder of the night unbothered the next day tobernir reacts with confusion and a bit of fear of the power he just wielded though he cannot deny how good it felt to use after some walking, the two see an enormous column of flame in the distance, confusing them. Walking toward it, they intersect the Red Run River, where they find one of their dog sleds and board it to make the journey back to Goodmead. Arc 2, Chapter 8, Flames Rekindled Upon being knocked unconscious, Corrine is forced to return to the mind room she shares with Oz. She discovers that he has decorated it to look like the most well-stocked speakeasy in Faerun, and finds him drinking away at its bar. He chastises her for getting them knocked unconscious, then departs when she only gives him stony silence in return, telling her not to mess the place up too bad. Oz then awakens in the middle of a raging blizzard, and is absolutely incensed at Kareen for leaving him in the middle of this mess. Meanwhile, Furpit dreams of dragon fire. When you open your eyes, you find yourself experiencing two sensations you have never felt before. The feeling of flight, and the feeling of being absolutely fucking enormous. Cold winter air rushes by your face as you gaze down at a town below, twinkling with torchlight and teeming with activity. Countless guards in armor rush to the wall, priming enormous ballistas. One fires with a hefty twang, flinging a bolt in your direction that misses only by a few feet. You look down upon the city and feel only rage. Furpet, despite realizing the city below is Bryn gives in to the rage and demolishes the place with dragon fire. Only when the entire place is reduced to ash does he land. Once on the ground, he is approached by the last few guardians of the city, who he attacks. Only as his blows are about to land does he realize that his enemies are the party though he jerks awake before the battle can commence. You awaken to the ominous sound of cracking ice. As you sit up, you see small frelames wreathing your body, though they quickly flicker out as you come to your senses. You have little time to think about them, as the more pressing issue of your current condition occupies your thoughts. You are in the middle of a small lake, no more than a hundred feet across. Though the lake is frozen over, spider webs of cracks have begun to stretch across its surface, originating from a point near you where you presumably impacted. At the lake's edge, Frippit sees a large humanoid silhouetted by the raging blizzard. Though he calls out to it, he gets no response, with it disappearing shortly thereafter. After gingerly testing the ice and seeing that it won't hold his weight, he transforms into a penguin to belly slide across. He investigates where the humanoid was, finding bear-like footprints that lead him to believe the figure was Oya, though he has no idea why they would leave him behind. He is distracted soon after by the arrival of Oz, who has up until now been staggering aimlessly through the blizzard. The two elect to pick a direction and walk until they find something, rather than staying out in the cold much longer. Their path is long and winding, but eventually the blizzard clears somewhat and makes it easier for them to navigate. As the aurora paints the sky overhead, they begin to hear singing, though it is too distant to detect the location or its words. All Furpitt knows is that it creeps him the hell out. After some time, the two come across a happy sight and a not-so-happy one, a dead human hunter, with a trail leading from him to a nearby illuminated cave. Inside it, Furpitt spots two goblins, the same goblins that he encountered near Kerkonig some time ago with all the confidence in the world the druid swaggers in, introducing Oz to the goblins and inviting himself in. He is absolutely blind to the fact that the two, Lex and Braglock, are absolutely terrified of him, at least until the latter abruptly asks Furpet if he's going to kill them. Furpit is bemused and crestfallen by the question, not realizing just how much his attack on the goblin thieves near Bryn Chandir had tarnished his reputation. He defends himself that... By saying that where he is from, it's natural to treat unknown goblins with suspicion and hostility, but it does little to help. His bluster leaks out of him like air out of a balloon, and he soon excuses himself to bed. Oz, meanwhile, helps himself to the goblins' ill-gotten reindeer and basks in the drama of it all. That night, Furpit is awoken by the sound of a wolf howl, echoing across the tundra. Lex joins him and tells him that if he truly feels bad for his actions, that their leader, Chief Yarbnok, may be willing to forgive him if he is willing to atone for his crime. She remarks that the goblin clans up in the dale were similar to how Ferbit describes home back in the day, until they were united under Yarbnok with the idea that they all had much more to gain by working together than by tearing one another apart. The next day, Furpet and Oz break off from the goblins, heading north. Before long, they find the Red Run River, frozen over, with one of their dog sleds on the other side. Though the two expect subterfuge, they cross anyway. Their suspicions are proven correct when four Dwergar appear out of invisibility, using their innate abilities to grow to massive heights. On a nearby ridge stands one wearing a crown and a cape, their leader, Zardarak Dwerakarn. He has met both Furpet and Oz before, having seen them through his scrying device back when the party rescued Speaker Trovis from his men. He blames the two, calling them the Flamebringer and his lackey, for their deaths, and sentences the two to die. The battle is pitched and bloody, with the massive of Dwergar proving a formidable threat to the two. Furpet is able to inflict massive damage on the Grey Dwarves using his fire magic, with Oz using the distraction to get in a few good sneak attacks. Though they are able to take out three of the four, they are both critically wounded in the process. Oz breaks off in an attempt to go after Zardarok to, to steal his crown, but finds that the king is merely an illusion. Meanwhile, the final Dwargar lands a mortal blow on Furbit, but before he can fall, his wildfire spirit turns and dives directly into his chest. Oz, you see Furpet stagger back a bit from the impact, though there are no obvious injuries corresponding to the spirit's entrance. And then you have to shield your eyes as a brilliant gout of flame jets upwards from where Furpet is standing. When it dissipates, Furpet is left standing there, his eyes black as coal and fire crackling over every inch of his skin. And Furpet, you feel so powerful. You feel like you could conquer the world, but mostly, you feel rage. Furpet immediately destroys the remaining Dwargar with a fireball, incinerating it, her into naught but ash. Zardarok, for his part, looks pleased by the outcome, referring to Firpit as the Glim enf and saying that he will have his use in the coming days, before disappearing. Without anywhere to focus his fire, Furpet falters and falls unconscious. Oz quickly rushes to resuscitate his fallen comrade, and the two board the dog sled and begin the long trip back to Goodmead. for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow BOA underscore cast on Twitter.